course, that's a fugazi. All right. That's a fugazi? How do you know it's a fugazi? You looked at it for two seconds. What, it's a fake? But, yeah, I know what a fugazi is. It's all a fugazi. You know what a fugazi is? No. Fugazi. It's a uh, fake. Yeah, fugazi, fugazi. It's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a... Fairy Coin Fugazi. Coin Fugazi. Coin Fugazi. Coin Fugazi. Coin Fugazi. Out of the ether, the amazing story of Ethereum and the $55 million heist that almost destroyed it all is by Matthew Lysing. It's published by Wiley. Uh, now available everywhere books are sold, and Lysing covers market structure out at Bloomberg and has for the last few years kind of been a go-to analyst of blockchain and cryptocurrencies uh, for the outlet. His, uh, wh- where I got turned on to him, if, if I remember, my skeletal trace memory here, is uh, what, what I now consider to be kind of a seminal article on the Ethereum DAO, or Decentralized Autonomous Organization hack, uh, that was titled the, Ether- the, sorry, the Ether Thief, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes. And it documented the drama almost a year later in 2017 after it happened um, as the summer of 2016 dust was kind of beginning to settle. And it's a combination. I I think if you read The Ether Thief, that will then prompt you just to go buy the book because it's it's old school journalism meets new school journalism. It's dogged gumshoe reporting. Uh, It's got a flair for literary suspense. And again, it, it, it it leaves you wanting more, a lot more. So, uh, Lysing is here to talk about what is now a full-fledged book, again, titled Out of the Ether, The Amazing Story of Ethereum and the $55 million Heist That Almost Destroyed It All, cinematic, historical, a, a really definitive look at the culture of Ethereum. And if all that wasn't enough, it actually makes news. Uh, he names uh, one of the alleged hackers. So without any further ado, Matthew Lysing, thanks so much, man, for coming on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Wow, Edward. Yeah, thank you for that intro. That was uh, humbling and really uh, great. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, again, I, I think as I told you pre-show here, I, I think I was settling in to read more of a, um, I guess, kind of a technical take or maybe an uber uh, pointy-headed financial take. And it, it has those elements, for sure. It, uh, it, it really is a cinema. It's, it's like reading fiction, nonfiction, I guess is the best way I can describe it. Um, but before uh, I, 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 I slap, uh, slobber, over you, uh, slobber over you rather too much more, <laughs> how does a market structure analyst at Bloomy uh, find cryptocurrency? Um, I seem to remember when I was covering, uh, at least in 2017, um, out of Bitcoin.com, that Bloomberg was, in, in our circles, at our news desk, was kind of considered to be skeptical, uh, at the very least, of, of crypto. So how does, how does the market structure analyst uh, wander into cryptocurrency? Yeah, um, so as a reporter, uh, I was covering market structure, uh, which means, you know, how markets work or don't work. Um, are they being, um, you know, improved upon or how are they evolving? Um, a big, a big beat, uh, or a big part of my beat to kind of define what I did there was going through um, after the financial crisis in t- 2008, the um, over-the-counter derivative swaps market, you know, was completely unregulated, and then it 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 went through and became regulated through the Dodd Frank Act. So that that's kind of like a test case um, to to s- sort of explain what I do, and I followed that very closely. 
So as I, you know, then kept working at that beat, um, I had heard about Bitcoin, you know, around 2014 or 13, somewhere. And, and you know, I, I dismissed it. I didn't think it, I just couldn't understand it, uh, how ones and zeros would, you know, ever have value. And I just, I didn't get it. Um, but then once I kind of got the blockchain component of it, about this distributed ledger um, where you could either, you know, have a public chain or a private chain, that really kind of was the light bulb moment for me. And I realized that um, this could change how, um, all the things I wrote about worked. And so in 2015, I went to my editor and said, hey, you know, I wanna start covering this blockchain stuff. And he's like, wow, okay, what, what the heck is blockchain? So it was a bit early. Um, it, there, there were other people covering it, but um, you're right, like Bloomberg uh, was skeptical of it for a long time, especially the, I think the Bitcoin part of the equation because yeah. it had a, you know, it had a, it has a reputation. And, you know, if, you, if you're a sort of mainstream publication, you know, you don't want to get associated with Silk Road and with, you know, money laundering and all the things that all the negatives of, of Bitcoin uh, that, that some people only saw the negatives. So, um, that, so that's kind of how I got into it. And then um, I really started with how the financial world might use blockchain to change like the back office operations of, of certain things and, and hopefully make things more efficient, and cost less money. And then, I really got into Ethereum um, in early 2016 uh, when I met Joe Lubin for the first time who started Consensus and um, he, he kind of made uh, the second light bulb go over my head um, about Ethereum and how it was so much more than, you know, Bitcoin is great at moving value and Ethereum is great at kind of doing everything else is the way I kind of think about it. So that, that's the, in a nutshell, how I got into this. Yeah, that actually leads to my next question, which you, you kind of already answered. Um, I think I told you that uh, I cover the kind of the, the currency side of cryptocurrency and sort of the peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash aspect of it, which I guess has become, uh, I guess, less so now, but uh, uh, it's kind of a battle uh, line or, or, you know, a, a distinction, I guess, in coverage. And I think for a lot of the people who would listen to this podcast at first blush, uh, they would be more inclined towards the Bitcoin side of things. And I think you framed it uh, well there in uh, the end of your remarks. So what, what is kind of a back of the envelope uh, definition? Like what is Ethereum and why was the DAO concept like so integral to it? If you can do that quickly. <laughs> um, yeah. So Ethereum, Vitalik Buterin, who invented Ethereum, was a big, big Bitcoin proponent. He um, co-founded Bitcoin Magazine. He, he wrote about Bitcoin and all the various um, technical and social aspects of it really well. And he was just a, he was a kid in high school, basically, when he was doing that. I was going to say, he was a teenager. He's like 19 years old when he invented Ethereum. Yeah, yeah. And when he was writing about Bitcoin, he was like, you know, in like, you know, he'd have Greek classes and stuff during the day in high school and then go... And, and write um, articles for Bitcoin Magazine, you know, in his free time when he was like 17 and 18. Um, so he, he kind of got the, he understood Bitcoin very well backwards and forwards, but like some people, uh, he got kind of frustrated that, you know, he, he saw this um, potential of um, this global distributed network of computers that could reach consensus and be a ledger and be uncontrollable um, in terms of like, Governments can't stop it. Um, corporations can't censor it. You know, all the things that a lot of people just like love about this technology. But then he became frustrated that like, 
it seemed, you know, the Bitcoin code was written to do that thing and it does it very well. But, and so people were trying to, you know, do colored coins. They were trying to do um, layer two kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the Bitcoin underlying code just doesn't really support it very well. And so after traveling the world and, and meeting a lot of people um, who were pushing the envelope with Bitcoin, Vitalik realized, I, you know, he, he wanted to create a platform for people to do whatever they wanted on top of a, of a blockchain. So the smart contract um, idea was, was something that, that fit into that, where basically now you can write computer code and host it in a smart contract on a blockchain where it could be verified and um, you know, um, stored on, on this distributed Ethereum blockchain. So it gave rise to all sorts of new possibilities. Um, one of which of course is ether, which you need, it's the currency. It's, it's, you can't participate on the Ethereum blockchain without, you know, using ether to fuel your transactions. So there is a, there is a money aspect to it in that sense. And then there's a sense of like, if you can make like anything that's a, in a contract kind of form can now be written in code and put on a, in a smart contract. And now it's available for anybody to use uh, who can access the Ethereum blockchain. So one of the biggest things, the early things that, that, were, that came about was the DAO, um, Decentralized Autonomous Organization, like you said. This was basically a virtual um, venture capital fund where um, everybody in the Ethereum world pooled all their money together, all their Ether into the DAO. And the idea was uh, you would get tokens in, re- in return for the ether that you deposited. And then people would come up with development projects of applications that they wanted to run on top of Ethereum. But of course you need money, right? To, to be a dev and to, to do your projects. So the, the holders of the DAO tokens would vote on the projects that they liked. And then if those, you know, if they ended up winning the vote, then they get development funds. Um, so it's a great idea. Um, very much in line with how Ethereum likes to kind of take aim at centralized um, processes yes. mm-hmm. and decentralize them and, and make them available to anyone. Uh, it, it ended up getting um, $150 million um, by the time the fundraising round closed. And then with the rise in the price of Ether, it was at $250 million or a quarter of a billion dollars in June of 2016 when it was hacked. And so, as I write in the book, this is like the biggest thing in Ethereum. Um, it wasn't even a year old and everybody was watching it. And then in front of everybody's eyes on Friday, June 17th, 2016, money just starts getting drained out of the Dow. And um, by the end of the day, it was $55 million had, had just been um, hacked. And so everybody kind of freaked out and that's where uh, the book kind of takes off. Yeah. And you know, um, this is going to sound blasphemous to to some listeners, but I often think that the the irony of of that uh, ether, uh, early Ethereum, um, I guess paradox, uh, irony paradox. Um, I get lost in my own profundity sometimes here. Um, <laughs> I think the irony of it is that the the god of decentralization sort of outweighs everything else in the Ethereum universe, and there's 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 much to to laud for that but then in a weird way when you create a DAO, you sort of create this weird decentralized centralized honeypot i'm sure not the first to say that but um does that make any sense yeah it absolutely does and and i write um i make this point in the book that 
what you're really talking about here is um, with a smart contract, once it's deployed on the Ethereum blockchain, it's very hard to change it. You can change it, but it takes, you know, a consensus vote of all the stakeholders and it takes weeks and, you know, you really have to like have a sort of political campaign behind it because mm -hmm. you have to basically convince everybody to update their software so that the contract can now be changed. Um, so it's very difficult. And that, that leads to you to the realization that uh, it kind of, uh, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say it requires, but um, the code that goes into a smart contract needs to be really good. And I think your audience will know that code is very rarely good. You know, it, it, right. stuff happens, it breaks, um, there's unforeseen consequences. And so it's, a, it's an interesting kind of duality where you have this promise of opening up the world um, to a lot of users um, who all they need is internet access, but at the same time, you're relying on developers and, and code writers who need to get the, the, the code right um, from the start, which is hard. For sure, for sure. And uh, if I sound like uh, I have sour grapes here, uh, not at all. Uh, I'm in awe of everything that Ethereum has done and, and continues to do. Uh, but going back to your first crack at, you know, looking at the DAO and its implications, and I think Bloomberg as an entity itself giving it coverage raises, I mean, you know, it's, I think it's easy now to look back and go, oh, that was a significant part of, uh, of uh, Ethereum and cryptocurrency history. But at the time, I think just Bloomberg covering it and giving it the attention it did raise the profile of, of everybody in the space. And so the article I'm speaking of is called the ether thief, uh, which I will link to uh, in the show notes in it. Man, is it fantastic. It's not only good because of, of, of your writing, which I, I don't want to downplay, <laughs> uh, but also in the sense of, of how they presented it, uh, which uh, if memory serves, there were a lot of like pop-out um, uh, references and it, it, they really embraced the idea. But what, or of you covering, I guess, because it was kind of a sexy, you know, here are these crypto hotshots getting burned. But more importantly, what, what did the, in my mind, uh, what did the Ethereans think of, uh, of the Ether Thief and, and how you, you approached that, the, the DAO hack initially? I think they liked it. And, and that was, um, you know, you, I, you always want worry as a writer, you know, these people give you their time and they, and they trust you with um, conversations and details and they hope you get it right. Um, I think I got it right um, in that story. And, I think that helped um, when it came time to write the book because there were certain people um, when I wrote the magazine story in 2017, I knew who they were, but they weren't comfortable speaking to me. It was, you know, maybe it was a little too soon to the Dow or they didn't trust me because, you know, that's fine. Um, but then I think they could, because they didn't know me really. And then once the magazine story came out and I saw what I did, I think, you know, um, I, I got access to a lot more people when it came time to write the book, uh, which is great and, and really super important for something like this, because I don't want to leave your listeners with the impression that this is only about the DAO. Right. What I wanted, what I wanted to do is string the DAO story throughout the whole book as a, as a narrative device, as tension about, you know, like, here's this theft and I'm, I'm going to try to find some of the hackers and, you know, here, here's some great new information that you've never heard before. But then in, in all the other chapters, I'm going to sprinkle around there, like here's Vitalik Buterin and his life story. And here's how he came to um, create Ethereum. 
and the white paper. And here are the, the crazy group of people he gathered around him uh, as the co-founders and, you know, how there was political infighting and backstabbing and greed and, and all sorts of like great human <laughs> drama. And I, when I was reporting the book, I just could not believe how it just kept getting like crazier and crazier. Um, and so, and then, so I knew I wanted to do that uh, to fill out the story. And so it's, it's really, I think you're going to you walk away from the book um, having a pretty good idea of what it is and how it came to be and what it means, um, as well as hopefully, you know, having, having it be a good read and something that you want to keep, you know, you want to keep turning the page. For sure. And uh, I was going to ask you if that was intentional, but uh, you just answered it um, using uh, the Dow sort of as a, uh, a device to kind of string along the reader. And, and yeah, uh, and I, knew, I knew that I didn't have enough for a book just with a Dow hack. Right. It's very hard. Um, I, I, you know, relying on blockchain forensics and, and doing stuff like that is, is technical. It's, it's hard. Um, doesn't come easily to me as a, as a writer, you know, I've never written code in my life. Um, so I needed a lot of help, but luckily I got it. But, you know, I, I knew that that was a, that was a definite piece of this puzzle, but it wasn't the entire puzzle. And there was a, there was a much bigger and, and more amazing story to tell even with the Dow, you know, I was going to wait to ask you, but, um, in a way, uh, part of my interviewing style is to just completely get ahead of um, the uh, the listener here. <laughs> um, but you seem to have a love or developed, a, uh, I don't know if it's simpatico, but um, for, for the people in the space, like, um, I'm not sure how to explain it, but, and I don't mean to crap on the guy, but sometimes like someone at the New York Times or some others who cover the space, they sort of cover it with a sneer, like, um, you know, here are these lunatics and here I am, you know, bestowing coverage upon them. I don't, I don't get that sense from your writing. And I get the sense that um, even if you don't entirely agree with what's going on or whatever, I think you're, you're, I guess sympathetic is the word I'm going to go with, but uh, you, you seem to have an affinity for, for some of the Ethereum people, which uh, I also find myself uh, having a great uh uh, affinity for them as, as well. Is is that fair to say? Did, do you think you developed uh, kind of like, hey, these guys are onto something kind of interesting? Yeah, I mean, yes. I First of all, I as a writer, I want to present people as human beings, as three-dimensional, um, you know, people with flaws and, you know, with great attributes and with compassion, you know, because um, it, it means a lot to me that these folks take a lot of time out of their lives um, to talk to me about stuff. And you know, in some cases, I interviewed some some folks in the book. You know, ten to twelve times. Uh, it, it was a lot of work, and they they were very generous. So th there's that. I want to you know I want to repay them um, for for that generosity by presenting them as as characters and not as two dimensional cutouts. Yeah, and there's it's... the fact that these guys are and women are just amazingly interesting people. Um, like Griff Green is just like, you could write a whole book about Griff Green, you know, Vitalik is really very, very multidimensional in, in ways that I don't think a lot of people see from his sort of public persona. But when you go, like I did, and you talk to his high school teachers, and you talk to his mom and his dad, and his stepmom, and you know, you, you get this sense of him. And, you know, like they, they shared some things with me, like this document he wrote as a seven year old called the Encyclopedia of Bunnies. It was like a 20 page document all about bunnies and like he was fascinated with them 
and it's just like this hilarious document where um, he's got all these funny jokes about, about bunnies and like how many man and girl bunnies are there. And it's just like, you can just the seven year old in him just like leaps out of the page when you read this thing. And um, then there's, you know, just like the other people who are kind of intellectually really just charging forward with this idea with that Ethereum presents like with Gavin Wood and, and some other people about like, they really want to make the world a better place by using um, decentralized systems to get away from centralized authorities. And, you know, they, it's just, you, you kind of have to repay that passion in a sense, like, because what they put out there is, you know, it's easy to ridicule it. And I, I'm not like swallowing anything hook, line or sinker, but sure. I, I want to just do my best to present a reader with these people in, in all of their all of their three dimensionality and, and their flaws and their traits and, and everything that's that makes human beings so interesting. Yeah, we're we're early in the Vitalik uh, Buterin uh, um, evolution, which I'm I'm about to ask you about. But I, I wanted to remark that the way you end the book uh, with the Burning Man anecdote and stuff with Griff, I thought was uh, was really interesting. Um, going back here just a tad, so. We're talking about Out of Ether, the amazing story of Ethereum and the $55 million heist that almost destroyed it all by Matthew uh, Lysing that's uh, out now and available um, bookstores and online. Um, hit, hit, hitting, I guess, Vitalik again because he's, he's uh, so well-known, at least um, as a figurehead, I thought you, you, you accomplished that. You rounded him out a lot for me. Um, I confess to having kind of a voyeuristic preoccupation with the guy. I never really delve deep into his personal story, or maybe I should say it's never been elucidated beyond the fact that, you know, he has the run-in with Musk and, or uh, Peter Thiel rather. And, um, uh, you know, it's it, all the points everybody knows already. Uh, but I think what you really show is his evolution as a, you'll see it a lot, especially on Twitter with, with Vitalik, is that he's, he's grappling with being essentially a central point of failure in a system that he's desperately trying to decentralize. And at the same time, he's trying to eschew the cult of personality that's arising around him and trying to maintain sort of a cypherpunk uh, ethos and there's all these sort of you know uh, people and and money and stuff pulling for his attention and so far at least you know from what I've read and and especially in in your your portrait of him in in this book is that he doesn't seem to be corrupted by it right like uh, again this is kind of what I was sort of hinting at uh, in the earlier question about your your affinity or affection for these people uh, Vitalik this is way overstepping journalistic bounds, but he seems like a really good guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, for someone who, you know, at certain points was probably worth more than a billion dollars based on yeah. the ether that he holds. Um, he's, he's incredibly humble. Uh, he has no pretenses to like Lambos or, you know, like some, some of the other co-founders have been much more flamboyant in, in how they've chosen to, you know, live their life. Um, there, there are stories like his dad 
like just begged him to get a new pair of shoes in high school because his were falling apart, but he, he didn't want to. Um, <laughs> his, his mom, you know, said she'd take him to the store and like, you know, he'd see toys and stuff, but he just wasn't interested in it. Um, even as a, as a small kid, it's just, he doesn't have, I think there's something about um, the, the commercialization or, or you know, that, that doesn't, it's never really affected him. So I think that has helped him be grounded in a way that that's, it would be hard for a lot of people. And he, he has an immense amount of power that like you were alluding to. Like, do you remember there was that day on Twitter where the rumor was that he was dead and ether was like dropping yeah. <laughs> stone and he shows up with like a picture, you know, or he's got a hash or something that proves that it's like, block, it's like the block height or something, you know, that he would do. He wouldn't, he would never do a newspaper. Right. So, right. Um, so yeah. And I think, you know, I admire that in a person because um, we see so much and it's far too often people with power and money just abuse those stations. And, and it's, 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 you know, troubling. And, and here's somebody, and even at a young age, I mean, imagine being that rich when you're 20 and, no and having, having a head on his shoulders like that. It really, that did, that impresses me and it continues to impress me. And I think every day that goes by Ethereum relies less on, on Vitalik. And I think, you know, I, I honestly don't, I, people say that it's centralized through him and I, I get that to a sense, but in the case of the Dow, when people were making the pitch, you know, we need to fork and we, we need you to update your software to fork. I mean, he certainly was a proponent there, but they got pretty much everyone in the world. It was like 99.9% of, of the people running, you know, Ethereum upgraded to the fork. And there's an interesting story about the one mining pool that didn't. Um, and that's, that's in the book as well. And that, that was probably intentional. So, you know, look, if you, tell me that he runs like the show great but to the 99.9 percent like aspect I, I don't think so i think i think people you know are have have their own sense about what ethereum is and a lot of different people have contributed in a lot of meaningful ways beyond vitalik and so sure. I, I think he's a figurehead in a sense more than like a leader if, if that distinction makes sense well, i i totally do and i think uh, people who are honest even if they're not uh, Ethereum fans necessarily for whatever reason. Um, I think the most you could say about Vitalik is that he's kind of a shelling point. Um, he's sort of what people sort of rally around and have as a, uh, a common um, a common goalpost or whatever, but he's not, uh, I don't think he's any more in charge of it than, uh, than again, just a simple, even a cursory examination of, of that project, if it's even possible at this point, uh, will will disabuse anybody of the notion that he's, you know, moving you know projects and so on i think he's um th that's just something we do in our minds and and again what i appreciate about your book is that you you round him out uh, i'm gonna say flatten him out a bit but uh, which is contradictory but i think you, you know what i'm saying but the getting back to yeah, the, the beginning too, like he knew like he knew from the beginning he he told me that he was really happy when people like developers started reaching out to him who could write in C++ or in, you know, Go or whatever, like there's Jeff Wilkie and Gavin Wood. And because he wanted, you know, he needed help from the very get-go and he wanted the different clients to be written in different languages and that's what ended up happening. And so, you know, like he is obviously the creator or the inventor of it. He didn't create it. Like there was a whole group that created it. Right. But yeah, so from the, you know, he, he's a yeah figurehead as, as I, I, I think of him. Sure. And 
don't know. There's just something, you know, I could be totally, totally wrong. He's young and he's got a long, long way to go. Uh, but seeing that dude coked out with Eastern European hookers somewhere in Bulgaria <laughs> doesn't seem to be on, on the plate of things, you know, where he exits scams and, you know, the <clears throat> uh, Interpol is hunting for him. I don't know. I just, he's, there's, there's, and again, I, I get this vibe not only from having read him and, and listened to him for years, but mostly through your book that he's just, he just comes across very, very well. And uh, I'm glad uh, someone finally took the time um, to kind of delve into him. And I'm glad he, he gave, which says a lot about him too, that he would, he would give you that time. Um, yeah, he was really generous. It was great. Yeah. And I'd be remiss if I didn't at least hit a little bit on the Dow before I let you go here, the Dow hack itself. Um, this takes you everywhere. Like I say, you know, you're burning man, you go to Sweden, Tokyo, you're all over the place. Um, looking at that Dow hack, <laughs> can you go through, uh, I have, just a bunch of Andrew, you tell me what did you think after you read that part what, what's your opinion of how i what i laid out which, which part about the guy i named tomaki sato yeah what do you think what do you think well i i love the fact that you take us first to sweden and that you fail or i fail isn't switzerland but yeah we're yeah in yeah switzerland. sorry yeah i i always do that i always do sweden yeah. in switzerland and i have no it's just an ugly american Side of me, I don't know why, but yeah, Zurich, sorry. And uh, you yeah, take Zurich. us there and, uh, and, you know, that becomes essentially fruitless. But here's, here's what I like about your approach to things. So I, I think as a journalist, and, and I'm, I'm less of a, of a prominent journalist than you are, but I, I think I depend way too much on emails, Telegram, Signal, there's something about going face to face with these these fellows, uh, doing the in person stuff, taking the flight. Uh, I've been at I've been at conferences <laughs> where they're they're literally in the champagne room, you know, three doors down, and we're we're you know we're texting. Yeah. Um, so there's a laziness to to the kind of journalism that that I do that that I find yours being so refreshing. So when you go to Tokyo and when you challenge him on it's very sly so i i i'm purposely trying not to give too much away here but essentially what you do is you sort of draw out of him inferences so i don't think you ever get him really to say yeah this is me i'm the guy i did it this is how it you know but you use inferences through polonix uh exchange um i was really excited to see that uh, Voorhees is uh Side shift plays a role because this is pre um, it from again, from our perspective, from my listener's perspective, he capitulates, right? He gives into the man and uh, changes to KYC and all that stuff. And from the more responsible, you know, adults in the room, yeah. he's, you know, he's doing KYC and what you're supposed to be doing, but yeah, essentially, nothing, man. you just had to have an email address. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, he doesn't go too crazy, but for us, you know, there's, there's a, a huge, huge uh, difference there. But I love that you make those connections. And yeah, I'm, I'm not sold on it. Like I say, you make news with his name. But the fact that as far as I know, he's not come out and defended himself, right? Like he, he hasn't said, no, I haven't. I, or no, I didn't rather, right? As far as I know, you're right. Uh, he hasn't said anything uh, since the book has been out. Um, Is there a danger there in me kind of concluding, well, 
therefore he did it or just that he, you know? No, no. I, I mean, look, um, this was a quandary I found myself in. Like you said, I, I thought originally that there were some people in Switzerland uh, who had, had pulled off the, one of the hacks. Um, and then it turned out to be a dead end and, and I was wrong. And I, like the information that I was relying on was kind of like 2016, 2017 era information. And then when I started looking at it more carefully right. in 2019, forensics had gotten a lot better. Um, Shapeshift was integrated to other systems. So now you could, you know, there was this big piece of the puzzle that had been missing previously. And so it was a much fuller way of looking at the, like, um, at the transaction history. And so that pointed me towards Tokyo and this guy, um, Tomoaki Sato, who had a source at, at an exchange who said, these the, the Poloniex were two withdrawals of Bitcoin ended up in these in this Ethereum contract in this wallet that I then linked to um, the attack contract. Mm-hmm. So it was only a few steps, a few hops and steps on the blockchain. Um, once I had the sort of end points, you know, then I could connect the dots in the middle. Um, and so I went to Tokyo to talk to this guy, and you know. Barring the full-on confession, which, you know, I didn't expect to get, you know, I had to just kind of go with what he gave me. And so it, it was a difficult interview. And um, I wanted to leave it up to the reader as to what they thought at the end of it, because I, I, don't, I don't have any way of, of knowing for sure. I, I think he's involved is what, what is my take. And his account, as he told me um, on the record for the book, was – it was open to other people. So he, that's his story is that other people had access to his Poloniex account. And because he was brokering trades for them, um, he was buying Bitcoin or or ether and other crypto for these people who couldn't buy it themselves. Um, I think because I think it's probably, and I don't really know this, I'm speculating is, is because, um, geographical reasons, not, not technical. It's like they might've been in areas of Asia where, um, they, it was harder to buy crypto for yourself. Um, so yeah, I, think, I think a lot of us forget how, because you know, it sounds crazy someone would do that, but back in the day, this was, this was you know, par for the course for people who wanted to get in. Yeah, yeah. So I just, I, I interviewed him, I asked him, and I went over all the stuff I had with him many times. And, you know, at the end of the day, he said, yeah, it's possible that the other people used my account and, and withdrew that Bitcoin and then went on to, to do the hack. And, I want your readers to know one thing that's important. There were several hacks on the Dow, not just one. So the big one on Friday is the one where the $55 million was stolen. Um, that hack was really elegant, and they covered their tracks very, very well. It's, it's, it's basically, um, from my point of view as a reporter, basically impossible to track that because um, mm-hmm. they, used, they used mixers. They did all sorts of stuff, and they, they were very careful. Um, so that happened on Friday. And then this, this guy that I, I think is involved was on the next Tuesday, there was a second hack. And I think it, it's a copycat attack because um, once the conch, like you can, if you know what you're doing on Ethereum, once the Friday hack occurs, you can go and find the attack contract and just kind of cut and paste it and use it. Um, if you, if you got the balls to do it and, and try another hack. And I think that's what happened. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's the, that's the guy that I feel is involved is, is on the second hack on Tuesday, which was the second biggest. Um, and it got, 
forgetting how many ether it stole. It was around 300,000, I think, if memory serves. So, mm -hmm. um, but not as big as the 55 million, but I just want to kind of make sure that people don't think that, you know, it's, it's always like it's complicated, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's always my, my thinking whenever I'm asked about Ethereum and in the age of DeFi and so on now <clears throat> and uh, supposed hacks, I always go back to the, to the Dow hack and I'm, you know, this is going to be controversial in of itself, but it's hard. And, and, and in one of the rare instances in my life, the FBI and I uh, agree. I, I'm not sure where there's a crime a lot of the times with uh, Ethereum related hacks. And the word hack doesn't seem to quite get at what they're doing sometimes because I'll, I'll ask about the mechanism. Okay. So how did this and this and that, and someone will explain, I'll say, okay, so, you could do this <laughs> and it's it doesn't people will use the analogy oh well it's like having a code on a vault safe and you know you have the code there and the vault door so that it stops people from getting a sort of an implied you know you can't go and someone starts monkeying with the with the uh, with the code in the on the vault door and, and therefore it gets in and so on and that's the sort of the moral ethical um, um, uh, trespasses there but I think it's a lot harder sometimes, as you say, uh, when you get to, even though in, as far as the reporting I saw, you were one of the few who actually kind of zeroed in on that Tuesday hack. Uh, and even you come away with, look, it's, it's complicated. And yeah. so I, I think, uh, I'm not sure what kind of question I have here, but I, I do think, oh, that's what I wanted to ask. So on that complicated issue, you know, with Silk Road, there seemed to be, uh, a clear villain in the U.S. Department of Justice, you know, sort of milieu um, at 2R, uh, to the crankier libertarian guys, the anarcho-capitalist guys, you know, Bitcoin was just, you know, it was such a threat to the American. <laughs> they had to go after poor Ross Ulbrich. Again, this is how we look at it. And they get their man and the rest is kind of history. But with the Dow hack a couple of years later, um, and, and this is a, a wonderful part, I think, of, of your story. The, the FBI kind of just goes, meh, like it's, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I tried to get the F yeah, the FBI wouldn't talk uh, to me after a year of trying, um, because I think they just kind of want to leave it in the past. Um, but that's what I was told, um, back for the magazine story was that, um, they believed that the Justice Department believed that there was a crime and that, that Americans were harmed, um, but that the jurisdiction was a real issue because like, where does a smart contract live? Um, <laughs> Try explaining that to a jury. Yeah, and then the money got, you know, they basically got their money back. And, and a lot of people actually made money on that because now all of a sudden they had Ether Classic and, you know, <laughs> right. in their wallet as well, which, it's just like I, th this story is just so wild and it just gets wilder and wilder the, the more into it you go. Um, so yeah, it's like, yeah, so this guy stole the money and then the community fought back and did a hard fork and, and got their money back. And then somebody kept mining on the old chain and ether classic was born. And now, you know, they had millions of ether classic uh, all around the world. And so <laughs> that's, just, that's an, that's an entirely other branch of this idea so it is it is and it's it's like 
it's not even science fiction. I mean, it's just, it's nuts. It's like, it's a great, fascinating part of this, of this big story, but it is, uh, I think, something that deserves a, its own, uh, another book on it for itself. <laughs> for sure. And I'm talking with uh, Matthew Lysing. He's author of the book, Out of the Ether, The Amazing Story of Ethereum and the $55 million heist that almost destroyed it all. It's published by Wiley, available now. Uh, I'm going to let you go. Uh, I've, I've already uh, lied to you and taken up way too much of your time. Um, two things, uh, which, you know, you can either choose to answer both or one if you're more inclined, uh, if you want to get out of here. Um, what is line 666, which I think is a funny uh, way to, to jump off and to get people into the, into the article and in the book? Um, and then lastly, um, here's an easy one. Uh, what's the future of Ethereum and Bitcoin as you see it? So again, like back <laughs> to the, um, the fact is stranger than fiction. The bug in the Dow code came on line 666, um, which is like, if you made that up, you just get laughed out of the room. <laughs> it's kind of like so, Kushner uh, having his office at 666 Fifth Avenue. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so yeah, the, I, I, it was as simple as a couple lines of code got switched. Like if, if they had the line, you know, 667, before 666 or something to that effect, um, the, the bug that was exploited wouldn't have been exploitable. So that, that's one thing um, that I, I loved. And as a writer, you just love those sorts of details when they're true. And um, that was one of the things that uh, I got really excited about when I was writing the magazine story. And I loved how you brought in Emin Gunsir of Cornell in that. And that yeah, was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he he, uh, he he's been he's really helpful um, along all all this, this whole journey from the magazine to the book to now. So the the future, I I um, I, I I don't think Bitcoin's going anywhere. I think uh, a permissionless payment system that is global uh, and and unstoppable and uncensorable is is not is, is valuable, and that's why Bitcoin has a value. I think uh, so as a payment option, I see Bitcoin um, being around for a very long time. I think Ethereum is, is fascinating to watch um, in a lot of different ways. And, and one, like the best known ways, I think, to, to briefly, the ICO craze of 2017 was nuts, but, and there's a lot of fraud, but it, it basically created a brand new way of people raising money to develop projects, um, which is you know, a fundamental part of the traditional financial system. You need money to start a company and you need to raise it somehow. And here an ICO, decentralize that and allowed anybody in the world to, you know, buy your coin um, or donate to you with Ether. And, and now you have money to start developing your app. So a whole new way of, of raising capital. Now, a couple of years later, we're seeing in DeFi, um, people are now pledging their Ether or other crypto or DAI as collateral for loans that they earn interest on. And then people use that collateral to do other things. And so now there's a decentralized lending aspect to crypto um, that is you know you think about lending in the traditional financial world it is another huge component of it um, you could argue that it's maybe the most important aspect of a bank um, is to loan money to people and now they're figuring out ways of doing that like peer-to-peer -peer. and and without anybody in the middle like bank of america or the fed or anybody else being involved so Every, so, every few years now, it seems like the pattern is like this other huge chunk of the financial world gets kind of figured out, quote unquote, um, by, by crypto people and in this peer-to-peer -peer decentralized fashion. So 
I'm just excited to see what the next one is, you know, and, and that, you know, people are, you know, already doing decentralized exchanges and things like that. And it's, it's, it moves so fast and things get fucked up and people, you know, get hacked and people don't do audits and get, you know, lose money and, and it's nuts. But at the end of the day, like really serious things are being created here that I find um, fascinating and, and we all get to watch it uh, in real time, which is another sort of amazing aspect to this industry. So I'm, I'm very bullish on it. I think, uh, I think it's, it's, it's only going to get better. Agreed. Agreed. And I love the, uh, the evolutionary aspect of it. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for, for all the time here. And again, this is the great uh, Matthew Lysing. He's author of the book, Out of the Ether, The Amazing Story of Ethereum and the $55 million heist that almost destroyed it all um, out uh, from Wiley. Available now. It's a fantastic read. It is really something uh, that you will not be able to put down. Uh, it's just the right sort of Goldilocks combination of all the, the elements we've discussed here from the literary side to the mystery side to making news and technical stuff. And you really get to know the Ethereum community, which, uh, uh, which I found fascinating. And uh, of course, Dimitri Buterin is, uh, is uh, a hoot every time you read him. Um, but, uh, so before I let you go then, how can people follow you, um, follow your work, and keep up with all things uh, Matthew Lysing? Yeah, I'm, I'm out there. I'm on Twitter, just at Matt Lysing. Uh, I'm on Keybase. I'm on Signal. I'm, I'm all over the place. Uh, it's pretty easy to find me. I don't hide. Um, and, you know, you can Google me for my Bloomberg uh, email. It's all out there, too. Uh, it's just mlysing at Bloomberg.net. And uh, I'd love to hear from people, uh, you know, some of the best stories I've, I've ever gotten are just kind of people getting in touch who, uh, out of the blue. So hit me up. Sure, man. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck to you. Thank you, Edward. I really appreciate this. Thanks a lot. Oh!